All right, good morning. Good morning. Open up your Bibles to Hosea chapter 1. We're in week 4 of a five-week series on divine love, and we are uncovering really um, just the very, very tip of the iceberg of what it means that God is love. Um, Next week will be our last um, sermon on this series, and then we'll start a series called Impossible Love through 1 Corinthians 13, and our goal is is to help you not just learn about God's love for you, but to give it away. Amen, Village Church? Amen? Good. We're right. Good. Um, So you'll notice the last couple messages, um, especially last week, um, we have made a connection between two things, and it's a connection that the Bible makes almost every time it talks about God's love for us. And the connection is very simple. It's this, that when God says he loves us, he connects it to our sin. So it's almost like he's like, I love you, and by the way, you are more sinful than you ever possibly imagined. As if we, when we understand the depths of our sin, we begin to understand then the heights of God's love for us. If we're only in debt to God a little bit, um, it doesn't really feel like God loves us very much if we only owe him a little bit. On the other hand, if we owe him infinitely more than we could ever possibly pay him, and he pays off our infinitely impossible debt, how much more will our gratitude be for him and how much more is his love for us? It's easy to love a good person. It's hard to love a broken sinner. So last week, the analogy uh, was that we were like the promiscuous woman who brought our alabaster flask to Jesus, which represented all of our hopes and dreams that were dashed to pieces, this woman's desire for a husband and for a family and for a kid, and she brings him to Jesus. And despite all of her brokenness and all of her sin and all of her promiscuity, what does she see when she comes to Jesus? She sees grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness. And he looks at her and says, this woman, her sins are 100% forgiven. So this morning, I want to focus on um, one of the words of love that we've talked about. And the word is from the Old Testament. It is hesed. And hesed, very simply, is loyal, enduring, covenantal love. Hesed is love that is based in a promise or a covenant, and it's best illustrated in the context of marriage. And Hesed says this, I am going to marry you despite you, despite what you might do, despite how much you could hurt me, despite what you might make me feel or not feel, despite how much you let me down or don't let me down, despite whether or not you meet my expectations or not, I will be faithful to you until death do us part. And that's what Hesed does, and God has given us, his children, the most beautiful Hesed. And so what he does in the book of Hosea is he illustrates his Hesed for his people in one of the most, honestly, emotional stories, I think, in all of Scripture. And uh, truthfully, this is my favorite story in the Bible, hands down. Uh, there's no sermon that I look forward to preaching more than Hosea 1-3, to which may, after we get done, you may think this is kind of demented. But what I leave with this is believing to the, my soul that God loves me despite me. God loves me on my best day, and God loves me on my worst day. And there is nothing that I can do because he's given me his said. He has made a promise to me. He has sealed that promise in the blood of Jesus Christ, and nothing can shake that. He loves me with permanent, enduring, covenantal, faithful love. And that is a promise that I need to hear over and over again until the day I die. And so we're going to meet Hosea the prophet. Hosea, uh, before this chapter 1, verse 1, he doesn't know he's really going to be a prophet, right? And uh, here's, I want to share with you some interesting things about the prophetic ministry. God has prophets to do some really, really, really 
crazy weird things. So you may not know this, but God asked the prophet Ezekiel to lay on his left side for 390 days. I imagine somebody in the church throws a coup and they're like, I'm going to lay on my left side at the top of Village Church and that person would be here for like a year and a half. When the, when the 390 days were up, you know what he did? God said, now turn over on your right side for 40 days. <laughs> Could you imagine getting to the end of 390 days and then God being like, oh, you're not done yet, psych. And then God says, oh, by the way, I want you to make a meal and uh, I want you to use human excrement while you're laying on your side to make the fire. And, I mean, just imagine, like, wow, God, you would actually ask somebody to do this. This, I don't know if this is creepy or weird or awesome or hilarious, but God asked Isaiah to walk around naked and barefoot for three years. Does that just seem weird to anybody else? Is that like, am I the only one that's like, really? Like, I imagine God's like, Michael, I'm calling you into ministry. I want you to walk around naked and barefoot for three years and then lay on your side for 390 days. And when that's done, go on your other side for 40 days and eat meals cooked with excrement. Okay. <laughs> Jeremiah, for months, wore a large wooden yoke around his neck. For months. And finally, another prophet had to come break it off of him after a number of months. And so I want you to understand something right on the front end. It is not easy to be a prophet. And these men were not just like, sure, I'll wear a yoke. Sure, I'll lay on my side for 390 days. Sure, I'll go barefoot. These men, the story of the prophets actually littered throughout their books um, are stories of their resistance. It's stories of how much they struggled with what God asked them to do. And, and so you get like the prophet Jonah, who God says to him, I want you to bring the gospel to Nineveh. And he's like, uh, no way, Jose, not going to do it. And he runs as far away as he can, gets on a boat, ends up in a fish, and gets puked back on land. And, I mean, do you think being a prophet is easy? God, if you're going to be a prophet in the Old Testament will likely ask you to do the most difficult, insane, crazy things you can possibly imagine. There seemed to be, hear this, no rules for what the pro God would ask the prophets to do. And you start reading these stories, and God brings them to this place, and, and one of the questions is, why would God ask these men to do such insane things? And we get to Hosea, and of all the prophets, I think God asked Hosea to do the most impossibly difficult so I want you to imagine with me, you're in Hosea chapter 1, and I want you to imagine Hosea has these aspirations for ministry. And um, I, we don't know much about him, but I, I got to imagine he wasn't just some random guy that God's like, Bloop, you're going to be prophet. Maybe he was, but imagine he's some kid with aspirations of ministry, and uh, imagine if this was like the 21st century, and you get your first job, and the first job is like, okay, um, I want you to walk around naked for three years, you know? Uh, unmet expectations, right? Some people thought being a prophet was glorious and awesome, and some of the prophets did have it a little bit easier, but by and large, what God is going to ask them to do is just ridiculous. And I'm going to show you this morning from this text three beautiful descriptions of God's has said through the story of Hosea. And here's how it starts off. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take your wife, yourself a wife of whoredom. First calling into ministry, first job, I want you to go find a wife who is a whore, and I want you to betroth her to yourself. Now, I want to stop for a moment. I want to just tell you some things that are happening. There are three layers to this story. You have to understand all three. And the first is this. There's a literal layer to this. Jose is a historical man. The woman he's going to marry is Gomer. She's a historical woman. This is an actual, real circumstance that happened. 
And the majority of the time, I want to tell you their story on the literal side of things. But there's another level of this story that you cannot miss. And in the second level of the story, it's allegorical, where Hosea represents God and Israel, or Gomer represents Israel. And then there's a third level of the story, which is your level and my level, which is simply this, that Hosea, the husband, is going to represent God, and Gomer represents you and me. And you're going to read what Gomer does, and you're probably, there's something in your American conscience that's going to be offended. And in that offense, I want you to stop, and I want you to just say, God, show me who I really am. Because we'd love to believe we're Gomer, wouldn't we? Or Hosea, wouldn't we? But the Bible is so clear. You're Gomer. Michael, you're Gomer. Now, for many of you, you don't know what that means yet, but you're going to figure it out. So there are three layers of this. And we get to this whoredom word, and it feels strong. And it is strong. And many people have interpreted this meaning that she was a prostitute. Um, we don't really know if that's actually what it means. But likely what this means is that she is a sexually promiscuous woman who honestly will just have sex with anybody that will give it to her. Apparently she is so desperate that she feels like the only way she can receive the kind of acceptance or love that she needs is she's going to get it sexually through a man. And so I imagine in this moment I am Hosea, and God looks at me and says this, and I look at him and say, a prophet and a promiscuous woman? I mean, what if she is a prostitute, a prophet? And a prostitute? Are you kidding me? What does this even mean? God, why would you even ask me to do this? And then he says, you remember when I asked Isaiah to walk around naked for three years? Remember that? If I can do that, I can do this. So this isn't surprising. Okay, so he goes on. Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Do you feel, by the way, the weight of these words? You have this good Jewish boy. I imagine he prays for his wife. He says, God... Uh, I just so want to marry a good Jewish girl. Give me, Lord, somebody who is so faithful to the Torah, who memorizes it and goes to synagogue faithfully. And, and I imagine he has such high hopes and high expectations because what does every single young man in a Jewish culture want? A wife and a family. I mean, this is the drive of most Jewish young men. And so he goes to the Lord. He says, Lord, who do you have for me? And he says, not only am I going to call you to be a prophet, I want you to go do this. I want you to take to yourself a wife who will cheat on you. I want you to take to yourself a wife who is already sexually promiscuous. And here's what I want you to know. When you marry this woman, she's not going to be faithful to you. Even to the point, I want you to hear this, Hosea. She's going to have kids from other lovers, and you're going to raise them. Dudes, how many of you would do this? Do you think Hosea just said, okay, Jesus, whatever you want, I'm 100% in. So this whole thing in chapters 1 through 3 is written by Hosea, and he's telling you the story afterwards. And how do you tell the most gut-wrenching, angering, painful story of your life in three short chapters? Every word, every sentence is loaded with arguments, with crying, and with weeping, and with frustration, and marital arguments, and the list goes on and on. He says, go take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. Why? Why would you do this to me, God? For the land commits great whoredom, by forsaking the Lord. Um, Hosea, I want you to be a living allegory so that every human being who sees you is reminded of what they have done to me. Now, some of you, you have a general loose relationship with God, and uh, I want you to catch the weight of the words. Does God feel a little bit or a lot about people who are supposed to be his children and give themselves to other things? 
So some of us, we're like, yeah, I'll deal with God later. I'll deal with God later. It's no big deal. Jesus forgives me anyways. It's all going to be fine. And yet, this is where our American sensibilities are just grinded by the word of God. The word of God comes in and says, it's idolatry. It's spiritual adultery. And then it takes it to another level and says, it's whoredom. I mean, the weight of this word just drops heavy on the American conscience. And so I want to look at anybody who says, I'm just going to postpone Jesus. And I, you know, I came to Jesus, but I'm not going to take him seriously. I'm going to date this guy or this girl. I'm going to live this lifestyle, whatever. And he would look at you and say, I don't feel lightly about this. This is an intensely emotional experience for me. I made you for more. Be my husband. Be my wife. Be my son or daughter. Don't, don't sacrifice. Don't give, settle for second best. Be who I made you to be. And so God feels incredibly, incredibly deeply about these things. Now, Gomer means completion. And what this means is that she symbolizes the um, completion or the fullness of Israel's idolatry. So she wasn't just a promiscuous woman. Uh, God picked Gomer because she pictured and symbolized perfectly through her rampant adultery, promiscuity, sexuality, she depicted most clearly how vile the Israelite people had been with their foreign religions. And so I don't want you to think like in a scale of one to ten, she's just kind of a loose woman. She is um, the epitome of the word whore or whoredom. And then we get to Diblam. We don't know, is this Gomer's mom or Gomer's dad? The word means two fig cakes. <laughs> so it's like, thanks for that. Uh, so it means one of two things. If, it's, if Diblam is her mom, it means there's no dad, and that two fig cakes was the cost to prostitute the mother, which would make sense. Um, that actually fits logically with the kind of woman that she grew up to be with no father. And if Diblam is the father, we have no idea what two fig cakes means, and um, it could mean that he was a man given over to rampant sexuality. And so then again, how appropriate with a father like that to raise a daughter who is desperate for sexual love and believes that intersexuality is the key and the source to feeling true love. So no matter how you slice this, Gomer comes from a dysfunctional home. The text wants you to know that. The readers of the text understood what it meant, and we're trying to, kind of, trying to grab it, and it's either the mom or the dad. But then here's what happens. She conceived and she bore a son. Now, at this point, I just have, honestly, a ton of questions for Hosea. Anybody want to have a conversation with him? Like, here's some of mine. Hosea, when you approached Gomer for the first time, did you have to purchase her? Or did she just give herself to you? Uh, Hosea, why did she agree to marry you? What did you offer her that made her leave her lifestyle that we will see she is choosing to live. Like she's not a slave yet. Okay? She's choosing this lifestyle. What did you offer her that made her want to come live with you? Hosea, how do you explain this to your parents, your friends, and your community? Well, God told me to marry a loose, promiscuous woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've all heard that, haven't we, Village Church, right? Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah. She's a Jew, uh, right? For real? Like, how do you even begin to justify this? And you say, oh, I'm a prophet. Are you? Like, if you're a prophet of God, why would he ask you to do this? Well, he asked uh, Ezekiel to lay on his side for 390 days, so it makes complete sense that he asked me to do this. I mean, I can imagine a world where nobody really, really fully believed him. I want to know, Hosea, what was your wedding like? Was it public? Was it a celebration? Was your mom and dad weeping? Um, I mean, on your wedding night, did you just feel like you were just another man? I mean, what, what was going on? I want to just go down the line with him and just walk through his life and his story. When you were courting her, was she looking at other men? I mean, did she really just let go of some of this idolatry and some of this promiscuity and sexuality just like that? Was she cheating on you when you guys were courting? 
then she conceived and she bore him a son, which is important because for this first son, whose son is it? It's Hosea, right? She bore him a son. There's two more that are going to come, but here's what I want you to pay very close attention to. Um, this is the only time that you're going to find that the son or the daughter is his. And so we get and we meet the first son, and his name is Jezreel. Now, Jezreel is a location, and it's a location that has a lot of historical importance to the Israelites. And so I want you to give a couple of analogies that would help you understand um, how this name would come across. I want you to imagine you're a Jew, and you give birth to a son, and you name him Auschwitz. I want you to imagine that you're Ukrainian, and you have a son, and you name him Chernobyl. I want you to imagine you have a son, you're an American, and you call him the Twin Towers. So there's so much emotion bound up in this name, okay? Um, This emotion is very palpable. It means God will scatter or God will judge. So every time the son grows up, every time uh, you call him Jezreel, God will judge, God will judge. God will judge. I mean, how many of you want to grow up with your dad being reminded at every moment, God's going to judge, God's going to judge. And then they have a second child, and it's a daughter. And the daughter's name in Hebrew is Loruhama, which means no mercy or no pity or not loved. Imagine being a little girl, and you grow up, and every time your daddy calls your name, he says, not loved, come here. Not loved, I have a question for me. You're not loved, you're not loved, you're not loved, you're not loved. And every little girl on the planet desperately wants to know that their daddy loves them. And every time dad looks at this little girl, he says, you're not loved. And who, by the way, named the kids? The Lord. The Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, or no pity, or no love. And so this child is, is physically, emotionally, spiritually going to be scarred for life, I would guess, with this. And then we get to the third son, and his name is not my people. I want you to catch the meaning here because the son is not Hosea's. Neither is the daughter, by the way. And so he has two illegitimate children. And every time this son is called by name, he says, you're not mine. You're not mine. You're not mine. You're not mine. And this kid is constantly reminded, you're not mine. My mother is a whore who had me with some man that I don't even know, and I'm being raised by this man. And that's their story. And there's something about this that just angers me. There's something about this that just frustrates me, honestly, for the sake of the kids, right? I mean, anybody like feel like, the God, if you love these kids, why would you do this? And I'm just going to give you a moment here, and we're going to get there. But I want you to go on because, as the point says, you're probably wondering here, how is divine has said restoring? Let me go to the next verse. Yet. I love this word. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, not my people, not my son, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Here's what I want you to happen. At some point in the children's life, and this is why I love this story so much, is that God enters into such terrible pain and wounding and brokenness, and he brings measurable restoration to it. My prayer, my expectation, my hope, is that maybe this kind of change of name did not come until they're like two or three years old, so they would never remember being called these names, right? So we're just going to bank on that, give God the benefit of the doubt. This is like pre-memory for all the kids, okay? But there's a day where finally the dad, Hosea, looks at this kid and says, you were not my kid. You're not my kid. You are not my kid. I'm adopting you, and you are mine. I am your dad. Nothing can take that away. I will raise you and love you until the day you die. 
And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel, you are someone that reminds everybody of pain and hardship and bloodship, but hear me, there will be restoration and redemption for your name, and your name will become one where people say, yes, Jezreel. It will become a place of hope. It will become a place of beauty. And finally, Jezreel is, is redeemed. No longer is he God who scatters, but it's a God who brings back together, a God who unifies unifies and unites. And you say to your brothers, you are my people. I love this. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. And this daughter, illegitimate daughter, the daughter of a whore who doesn't know her dad, finally has this man look at her and says, you are loved. You have received mercy. Because here's the fact. The daughter was not loved by her dad. But then Hosea comes in and he's God and he looks in 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 allegory and says, I love you. I will adopt you. I will raise you. Men, how many of you would raise the illegitimate children of your rebellious, adulterous wife? And then look at them and give them security and identity and honor. You are loved. Then he goes on. Number two, divine has said, is a disciplining love. God has tried ordinary means, extraordinary means, pain, prophets, the word of God, you name it, to win Israel back to himself. And it doesn't work. And here's what's happened. Gomer's left. She's gone. Could you imagine growing up as a kid, not knowing where your mom is, not knowing who your dad is, just the instability, the pain, the suffering? So Hosea looks at the kids And somehow Hosea, maybe, and and the kids in Gomer have some kind of connection. He says, plead with your mother. Plead. She's not my wife. This is not what my wife would do. She is not acting like my bride, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she has said, and I want you to just feel the weight of this. This is not somebody who is just... Um, I think I'm going to try something else. This is belligerence. I will go after my lovers. Imagine Hosea and Gomer are having a fight about something. You can't just leave me. You need to stay with the kids. You made a promise to me. We're married. And she looks at him and says, I will go after my lovers. Could you imagine the gut-wrenching pain and then to watch your wife leave the house as you raise three children, one of whom is yours? who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Husband, you're not doing enough for me. You haven't provided enough for me. You're not good enough for me. They'll give me more. All I have to do is give them my body, and they give me all the things of this world that I want. Somebody shared with me the 80-20 rule in marriages, and it's really simple. It's that your spouse does not have the capacity to meet any more than 80% of your needs. You know what that means? Your spouse will never meet 100% of your needs. Can I get an amen from everyone who's married? Right? And what happens is with the 20%, it's so easy to become discontent. Well, this person could give me the 20%. This person could give me this person. This person could give me that. And so what so many people do is they give away the 80 for the 20. And you know what happens when you give away 80 for 20? You have less than what, we do, when, than what you began with. And you're left even more destitute and even more empty and even more broken. And this is the foolishness of sin. I will go after my lovers. They will give me my 20%. And Hosea is sitting here saying, I've got your 80%. 
I can't be everything you need. You're right. I can't give you all of this stuff. It's true. But I love you. I will raise your illegitimate children. I will love you as if you have never done anything. I will stick with you until death do us part. And I know the law gives me freedom to leave you, but I won't because I promised Hesed. Charles Spurgeon has a really interesting, interesting point on the next few verses, and he shows five observations of those who are under God's discipline. And I want you to imagine, some of you, you in this room, are rebellious. Some of you have to go back into your life and remember seasons of rebellion. And, and for those of you who have been made for more than what you're living, these are the kind of things that God does to woo people back. Number one is he provides sharp afflictions in your rebellion. Verse 6 says, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. So I want you to catch what's happening. Hosea is getting in front of Gomer and trying to make her adultery as hard and difficult as it can possibly be. And so what happens is is she goes, she gets hurt, she gets pricked with thorns, and it's way harder. Uh, In the past, when she would go whore and be promiscuous, it would be easy. Men would just come to her, and something's happening. Hosea's getting in front of her, and he's making it very difficult. And then number two is insurmountable difficulties. Hosea says, I will build a wall against her. I will make it so that all the places that she wants to go, I will make it as hard as humanly possible. And this is what happens. You'll start to see that God wants to bring you back because now you're experiencing more pain and affliction than you ever have because of your rebellion. And now you're finding in your rebellion that it's just harder. And the things that were easy before, you aren't able to get. And it's just difficult. And life is getting hard. And then number three, blinding perplexities. So that she cannot find her path. And she's like, where am I? And there's a sense of lostness that you finally experienced before giving your your body away and giving yourself to all these things was fun and it was a blast, but now it's leaving you empty and void and you have no purpose and you know you're made for something more. And then Charles Spurgeon goes on and says, utter failure. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And I imagine a world where he says, oh yeah, she has a sexually transmitted disease. Don't have sex with Gomer. And men are like, you know what, I'm just going to stay away from Gomer. And whatever he's doing, he's getting in front of her. And now the thing that made her feel so loved and so important, it was so much fun, is leaving her completely empty and completely destitute. And then number five is bitter disappointments. And she shall seek them but not find them. And she's left with nothing. And why does God do this to you? Why does God do this to her? Why did Hosea do this to her? Because when you reach your end, you have nobody to go after but God. And Hosea wanted Gomer to get to her very end. And he wanted her to get to a place where she would come running back to him. But then, I want you to look at verse 8, because this is just so striking to me. Even in the midst of her rebellion, he looks at his children, and I want you to hear what he says. I mean, many of you would look at your kids and be like, I can't believe your mother, she's such a this, she's such a that. I mean, you'd have all these terrible words. I mean, imagine the anger and the vindication you want to take and get back at her. And I want you to see Hosea's heart, because as you see Hosea's heart, you begin to understand God's. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Like what Gomer doesn't even realize is actually he's funding her food, and she's using all the money that he's putting in her accounts to worship Baal and to commit adultery and to have sex with men who honestly are ruining his life. And he says this, I will lay waste her vines and her figs, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. 
The goal of God's discipline is always twofold. Number one, restoration. That God wants you who are rebellious and running away from him to be restored to him. But it's not just, restora- it's not just restoration, it's redemption. That God wants to use your pain. I imagine a world where Gomer comes back to Hosea and they live in the 21st century and they are speaking at conferences about how God cannot just restore any relationship but redeem and use the greatest pains of our life for the glory of God. And so you, you sit there and you say, God, how could you ask Hosea to do this? And personally, I think our greatest pains are the fertile ground for the greatest ministry that we could possibly have. And on another level, it's one thing for Hosea to say, oh, Israel, you're committing adultery. This man will preach like never before. Because this isn't theoretical for him. This is personal for him. And I think God does this to people who are called to preach sometimes. He gives them much more challenging experiences and deeper pains because out of this pain comes our greatest ministry and our greatest fruitfulness. And I look at her and I'm like, I imagine she's on a speaking circuit talking about coming out of a life of prostitution and sex slavery and you'll see how all this unfolds here eventually. But, but here's what God wants. Every hardship and pain he brings into your life If you are rebelling, it is for your restoration and your redemption so that he can get much glory out of it. And so some of you are in this really interesting spot where you're just coming back to the Lord or you're considering it. And what I want to say to you is this. If you're faithful, God will not just restore you, but he will use your story and your pain to bring other people back to him. Number three, divine has said is a redeeming love. He's talking to his children. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. The wilderness is away from the city. It's away from all the junk. It's where they can just be alone. There's no distractions. There's no temptations. They're on a big plot of farm out in the middle of Montana. It's just them, right? And he says, I'm going to allure her. Now, this isn't sexual. This is, I want to woo her. And then here's what he says and speak tenderly to her. Would this be your heart, man? How could you? Do you realize what you've done to me? Do you realize what you've done to the kids? Do you realize how painful this is? Do you realize how far-reaching the consequences are? Do you realize what has happened here? You chose me, Hosea. You knew who I was. It doesn't matter. You don't do this. This is not what good people do. He doesn't do any of that. He allures her. He speaks tenderly to her, and I love this. He's modeling for his kids. He's saying, here's what I want to do for your mom. Pray for your mom. Plead with your mother. I want to speak tenderly to her. I want to bring her to a place where she can get away from all this, and I want to bring restoration and healing and redemption to your mom. She is so broken. And there I will give her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Acor, which literally means trouble, a door of hope. And all the things that were so painful and so hard and so troublesome, now she's going to find hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth. And apparently there was a time, maybe it's just for a little while, where Gomer loved Hosea. And maybe it's just because Hosea was giving her what she really wanted. And, but there was a time. And then he says, I'm going to get her back to those days, the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. When I first took her out of this lifestyle, And she came home with me. Remember that affection she had? You remember when she first had you, Jezreel? Just that affection she had? We're going to get that back. 
It goes on in verse 16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the name, names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in, in said steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Despite what you've done to me, I made a promise to be your husband, and I will be just, and I will be merciful, and I will be faithful, and I will give you, despite you, the greatest love you've ever imagined. And even though every other man in this world would yell at you and condemn you, I will speak tenderly to you. If you're Gomer, wouldn't you die for this? And yet she leaves. And between chapter 2 and chapter 3, we have no idea where she goes. We have no idea how long she's gone for. It's a time, though. And what happens between these chapters is that Hosea seems to settle down a little bit. He gets a rhythm in his life. And God has to approach him again and say in verse 1 of chapter 3, And the Lord said to me again, Go again. Again? Are you kidding me, God? I've already gone and gone and gone. I'm raising two children who aren't even mine. Like, how much do you want to do this, God? He doesn't even tell him that she is going to come back to him. He just says, I want you to go, and I want you to love her again. Some people, because it doesn't mention Gomer, think this is another woman. No, this is not. This is Gomer, 100%. And then he says this, I want you to love a woman. This is Ahava. I get you don't want to do that. You need to make a choice. That's what it means. It's a love that decides. It's a choosing love. You need to make the decision. I get this. I get this, Hosea. I've called you to this. I've made you for this. This is what it means to be a prophet. You do hard things. Okay. I want you to love a woman who is loved by another man. So right now, she's living with another man and is an adulteress. I want you to just know that. You're going to find her. Wherever you find her, she is living with another man and is an adulteress. But this is a relationship that will kill her. You need to get her out. She is your wife. You need to take her home. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Really, cakes of raisins? You ever just read that as an American? You're like, what? where did that cake of raisin come from? It's an illustration of the sensuality that they use to worship the Baals. They're committing spiritual adultery with the Baals and they use cakes of raisins, fertility, blah, blah, blah. And God says, even though they're doing that, I still love them. So now, here is the verse that just strikes me. He goes, and he finds her. And he finds her being sold as a sex slave. So you, you buy a sex slave for 30 shekels. That's the standard going rate. And they take these women, and they strip them down naked, and they put them before a bunch of men, and they bid. And here is this woman. Here's this bride, the mother of well, one of his kids. <laughs> and she's beaten down. She's not beautiful. Sin has taken the toll. How do we know this? Because she only costs 15 shekels. People won't pay 30 shekels for her. Anybody? 30, 30 shekels for this woman. Nothing. Crickets. 25. Nothing. 20. I've got 15 and uh, got a homer and a lecheth of barley. <laughs> How will that do? Sold. Nobody else wants her. Now imagine you're Gomer and the price is going down and down and down. Unloved. Unwanted undesired, and then you meet the eyes of your husband, what do you feel? (sighs) 
because apparently the man she was with didn't value her at all. He decided to sell her and get as much money as he could for her. So he says, I bought her for 15 shekels. And then verse 3. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. And I love this. So will I also be to you. I mean, do you just see her falling naked into his arms, finally freed from the shackles of the slavery, loved purely with a said despite her? And we read this, and you gotta wonder. She comes home. The kids see their mom. What do they say? Hey, mom. Or do they just run and they just give her a huge hug? I think dad has prepared them. The way dad spoke about mom, they were praying for mom. And she comes in the door and they throw their arms around mom and it is a sweet reunion. And she is in the wilderness. She is away from the city. She is safe. She is secure. She is loved. And then she realizes that 20%, oh, by the way, I also gave you the 20% while you were gone. Jose is an amazing man. I see why God called him to be a prophet. I see why God called him to do this. And the question, you know, lingers. So did she leave again? And the way the book is written, it seems like God didn't just leave Hosea and Gomer in this place, but he promises to Israel a day of restoration. And what seems to happen here is that he seems to give Gomer and Hosea a reconciled relationship so that Israel didn't just see the picture of adultery, but they saw the picture of restoration. I imagine their teaching circuit. I once was a whore. (laughs) I once was a prostitute. I once was a sex slave. I mean, she could write books, right? And those books would sell like wild cakes. And she would talk about the redeeming, restoring, disciplining love of her amazing, kind husband, which is an allegory. It's a metaphor for the amazing, restoring, redeeming love of God in Jesus Christ. And so we step back, broken gomers. And we wonder, I've heard this said so many times, could God ever love me? Could God ever forgive this? And I would just say, if God can love Gomer and forgive Gomer, if Hosea can love and forgive Gomer, God can forgive and love you, no matter what. Hesed is faithful, enduring, covenantal love, despite. And when you come to Jesus, you get Hesed from now until all of eternity. And when you try to run, he lures you back. He brings you into the wilderness and he brings restoration and redemption to you. And in the process, some of you have been disciplined majorly, but God always disciplines to restore and to redeem you. Love this story. And as much as I hate it, her story is my story. What would I be apart from Jesus? I don't even want to imagine. Some of you know because you didn't come to Jesus until later in life. And even you, you've been restrained in numerous ways. God, for many of you, never gave you to the fullness of your sin. And yet I have to look at at the word of God that speaks truth to me and say, apart from Jesus, there are no boundaries to what I'm capable of. And when I come to Jesus, he restores and redeems me and even disciplines me. And despite how dumb I can be, he loves me and brings me back home. So Christians, I love being a Christian (laughs) because I'm unconditionally loved. And for some of you, you're like, how does talking about a whore make me feel loved? (laughs) If God can love her, He can love anybody. And you can leave here just with confidence. You 
are truly, undeniably, securely, forever, enduringly, covenantally loved. Let's pray together. Father, I am so grateful for Jesus that Jesus paid infinitely more than what Hosea paid for Gomer. Because our sin is honestly infinitely worse. So I want to just say thank you on behalf of every believer in Jesus in this room that our sins are 100% forgiven, past, present, and future. You've given us your Holy Spirit, which even prevents us from straying even too far. We're on a leash, and it's a merciful leash. It's a gracious leash, and we're so grateful for that. And Lord, that even when we try to run, you're still there protecting us and providing for us and caring for us and even disciplining us all to restore and redeem us. We are just so loved. It is crazy. And Lord, when we see the depths of our sin, the reality of your love for us just amplifies and we get to relish in it. And so God, I thank you that you have brought us home and we no longer have to worship false gods and false bales and give our lives over different things because in you we're 100% loved and secure. God, I thank you that those who were once Jezreel and no mercy and not my people are now loved children adopted by you and loved perfectly. So God, as we respond, we just really truly desire to worship you and exalt you because of what you've done for us in Jesus, and that's what we want to do now. So thank you in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.